The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to In Discussion. Our guest today, Georgian Bradley, founder of the Imaging Foundation, talks to the protection of our precious oceans and marine life, supported through powerful media output and education. My guest today, Georgian Bradley, is founder of the Imaging Foundation, a non-profit organization established to elevate the vital importance of our world's oceans and marine life. Achieved through powerful media productions and educational programs by partnering with organizations around the world. The Foundation is having significant impact on the preservation of our greatest asset, the incredible oceans and marine life they nurture. Georgienne, good afternoon to you. Hello, David. How are you today? I'm very well. How about yourself? Oh, I'm doing very well, thanks. I'm sure that you are uh, busy as usual. Yes, we're extremely busy, actually more busy than usual, if that's even possible. (laughs) Is this one of the busier times for your foundation, or is it just busy across the board? We're always busy. There's always more to do. Um, We're very busy today because of um, a competition that's being hosted by Facebook and Chase Bank Community Giving. So uh, we have volunteers uh, from all over the world Skyping in and emailing and asking for direction, and uh, tomorrow night, um, wave raves will be held all over the world to celebrate the ocean and to uh, air a screening uh, and to discuss current challenges that are facing the ocean. So uh, all of this is going on, and there's quite a bit of uh, hustle and bustle. Is it not amazing the way that social media has just impacted all our lives, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or any of those portals, it, it must be a great asset for you. It's absolutely phenomenal, and it certainly is a feel-good type of atmosphere when you have people um, Skyping you, and you know they're real, it's a relatively minimal cost, um, but people really are becoming so familiar with that type of tool, and they're contacting each other, and it just truly becomes a, a 21st century global grassroots effort and it's it's uh, it certainly feels good well it's a big step from the fax machine that's for sure which i'm only just getting used to um <laughs> i'd like to start off if i may with your your career and your background prior to the foundation being launched georgian can you give our listeners an idea of of how it came about that you managed to to work in to this amazing venture that you have now? Well, it has been an amazing journey. Um, Certainly, it's been circuitous. My career started um, based in traditional biology. Um, I had a very, very uh, conventional path in front of me. I um, went to graduate school, 
I studied biology. I ended up in medical school, and uh, before that, I did quite a bit of research at the Rockefeller University and at UCLA. Um, and I was very, very excited about uh, working with the World Health Organization, and uh, and that seemed to be what I was going to do with my life. But uh, a good friend of mine called me one day and said he needed help. Um, could I take some time um, and work as Latin American representative um, and scout scuba ideas or underwater concept ideas throughout Latin America. Um, he just had an opening. I had to make the decision within three days. And because I was a scientist and a scuba diver and I spoke Spanish, um, I was a very good fit. So he told me I only had three days, but I told him I could give him my answer before I got off the telephone. And, uh, <laughs> and um, I thought, this, this is great. This is another one of those opportunities that land on your plate, and you don't want to look back and say, wow, I would have you know, liked to have worn that hat for, for a, a year. And um, I'm still wearing that hat. I, I never went back to the traditional world and um, found my passion in the ocean. What is it about this foundation that, that places it apart from other organizations? What is its principal remit? I think um, what happened was, and what turned me around, and what makes this organization different was, I would go into the field and I would take photographs or I would have video, and I would bring it back. And I, because I was affiliated with the Cousteau Society, I had access to um, leaders, and I was able to show them pictures. I was able to show them basically the imagery stood witness to the truth. And words, there are a lot of words, there are a lot of ideas, and there are a lot of, um, you know, um, conversations going on about what's going on um, in climate change, um, ocean poaching, etc. But when you can bring back an image and say, look, this is what's going on, um, it, it's very, very powerful. And it's also a way that you can um, leverage your experience and make it go a long way. Um, I think something else that sets the foundation apart is, um, I, I mean, in my professional life, I work on documentaries, and um, it, you know, there's a tendency now for um, documentaries and reality TV to go more towards, you know, just that reality TV and um, th that type of low-budget programming. Uh, and we were becoming very frustrated in the field. We're seeing things happening, and we're seeing change, and we're being told by uh, the traditional channels. That you know this isn't this isn't budgetable. This isn't what they want, and we want to tell that story. We want to tell what's going on. We want to give people the opportunity to do the right thing. And while many people will turn it off because they don't want more bad news or they don't want you know to see something um, during dinner that might not be uh, a happy thing, we we want to give them that opportunity to um, be aware. And uh, we don't want to be known as the generation that let this all fall apart without doing anything. I, I am very interested that you mentioned that you were essentially a scientist. And then on the other side of that coin, you are a documentary filmmaker. So you are using an analytical approach as well as a creative approach. How do you make those two paradigms work in in getting that message over to your audience as to the, the, the status of the oceans and the marine life? That's a very good question. I think that, um, I think that that's 
a challenge for any filmmaker, how to produce a film and you know how much you bring your own voice into your show. Personally, I think that any, um, any program with passion um, brings a bit of the producer into it. I mean, it, it certainly, it's certainly, it's tough to um, pull yourself out of the programming completely. I think what I saw in science was there was so much re- research going on and there was so much um, information, um, um, sorry, um, there was so much work being done in specialty areas that people weren't talking with each other and they were actually developing their own language and it was very, very hard for other scientists to even understand what was going on in analogous fields. What became a challenge was taking the information that was being found or um, discovered and then delivering that to a popular audience in a way that they found compelling, interesting, and understandable. And I think that's what first got me interested in um, working with documentaries, bringing about the truth, bringing about um, bringing um, facts to the um, the wide audience and um, putting it on their table in a way that they could understand and giving them a call to action so that they could actually do something with that information. I remember back in the 70s as a kid watching the Cousteau programs. What an amazing man. Is it, is it accurate to say that there was a lull in that activity uh, after Cousteau moved on? Uh, were the oceans receiving less emphasis uh, in our world after after those programs finished, and I realize of course that his son took over the the challenge, but was there any period where it it was devalued in any way um I actually don 't think that anything has ever filled um, the spot that Jacques Cousteau left behind. Um, I think there was a continuity um, with his programming. I think it was this feeling of the first time first time people saw this. Um, Cousteau built up a, a level of credibility that I don't know if anyone will ever be able to um, have that level of, of credibility. And plus, uh, in those days, there was limited programming. We didn't have all the choices. And when a Cousteau show came on, in my house anyway, everything else stopped. There wasn't any other choice. We were going to watch that program. And, uh, you know, it was it was phenomenal. And I think that... Um, Underwater programming today, for the most part, um, is about jaws and claws, and uh, I, I think that Cousteau had a way of balancing excitement and adrenaline, and then, wow, isn't this zooplankton fascinating, and wow, look at this little coral polyp, and look what it's doing, and he, he, he sort of had an ebb and flow, and uh, that was ph- phenomenal. Um, so, it, it, I mean, just his whole story and going out with the Calypso and where are they going now and come along with us. We felt like we were right on the boat with them and discovering, you know, whatever it was that they were discovering that week. Well, I suppose the success of that was the funding. I mean, clearly those programs, and by the way, I was back in the UK 300 years ago and there was the BBC and there was the BBC and there was the BBC and and it was all Jacques Cousteau and and we were brought up on that. But it must have taken a great deal of financing to be able to create those programs. Is that something that is acknowledged as not being available now for the oceans given focus on other environmental areas, Georgia? 
Um, funding is definitely a, a huge issue. Um, if you look at the pie um, about where philanthropic efforts are focused, uh, it's certainly not heavily on uh, conservation issues. Um, human-based causes are, um, are, you know, are, are foremost um, on most funders' um, tables, and, and and that's unfortunate because with the state of our oceans and some other conservation issues right now, um, we won't have a petri dish to live in. So um, I think that we first need to make sure we have a healthy planet and that we have um, healthy ecosystems that are supporting life on Earth, and then we can fit the health of, uh, of humans in around that. Can we go back to the oceans themselves? Uh, there are huge unknowns about the oceans, um, things that we, we have no idea about, marine life that we haven't even yet discovered. What is it about the Imaging Foundation that is assuming the responsibility to use media uh, to, to elevate those unknowns, to elevate that information that can become so terribly interesting uh, to those who wish to, to know more about the subject? That's a very good question. Uh there's less known about our oceans than there is about outer space. Um, the Marianas Trench, which is the deepest part of our ocean, has only been vis visited by two humans um, ever. Who, who are they? I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, I can't. But but it's it's all it's it's been very uh, it's been a very um, it's it's a very mysterious. Um, Ecosystem, we are discovering so many new species um, every month in in the ocean, and I think that we are we, we're really pressed to um, go and document what we're seeing. We're losing a lot of those species as well. So if we can go and document them and uh, and um, show people what's there, how fascinating they are. Many of these images. Uh, these animals are so interesting and weird and, uh, and intriguing that even Spielberg couldn't think of something as just crazy. And, and, and um, it, it's just, it's, it's a fascinating place. And uh, just, you know, sitting at 15 feet and waiting on a decompression stop, I'll look around me and see just so many different creatures that are, that are so small and, and, Every one of them is, is different, has a different morphology, different shape, swimming in a different way, and some of them are spiraling and others are zigzagging. And just, There's just so much life out there, and we don't realize it. I and I think that if we can document that, photograph it, bring it back, um, I, I think people will understand that better, and when um, legislation comes to our lawmakers, we will be better positioned to rally support that will protect the ocean. Clearly, you're using that visual dynamic to elevate the importance of the oceans and the marine life. How do your audience react thus far to the material that you're producing? And, and more importantly, I think, uh, how, how much do the children get out of this? Because they're surely uh, our future here who need to take on this challenge possibly uh, in a more 
uh, serious and responsible way than, than we have so far. Yes. Um, I think that, and the children are the most receptive to what we're doing. They're very excited about um, any work that we, um, any work that we can bring to their table, they're, they're thrilled. Um, I think that um, we've seen them watching a show, say, for example, about turtles and uh, about protecting turtle eggs on the beaches. And what will happen is they'll then go back to their parents and say, hey, let's not collect those turtle eggs anymore. Hey, let's not. So we see that change already happening. That is the new generation. Um, and um, I think that using video to teach our kids um, about what our baseline should be, about what the health of the ocean should be like, um, will guarantee that um, we can enjoy a better, you know, a healthier ocean tomorrow. Um, let's, so. let's, if I may, cite an example of one of your projects, and this to me is absolutely extraordinary. And I hope that I pronounce this right, the, the Cocos Island that became a UNESCO site. Yes. How did you accomplish that? Uh, that must have taken a lot of um, arm-twisting. Uh, what was the process through which you achieved that, Georgian? Well, um, to be admitted into a UNESCO, onto the UNESCO World Heritage list, um, you need to fulfill certain criteria, and you're only allowed to apply three times. Um, Costa Rica had already gone through that process twice, and this was the third and final attempt. And there was you know, a whole cadre of people who were working on the proposal, what we brought to the table was images. And we were able to go out with the UNESCO team and document the animals, the, um, the fact that there are currents that converge there that don't converge anywhere else on Earth. And, and you'll see animals together in that environment that you don't see anywhere else. The fact that it's part of the same archipelago as the Galapagos Islands and that one of the Cocos Finches was one of those that was used by Darwin. All of these things made it phenomenal, but we brought back the photographs. And when you can lay them on a table and you can see it and the words go away and you can just see that this is one of the largest uninhabited places in the world. It's one of the final wild places. And, um, and, and we can learn so much from that because we don't have factors uh, imposing on this wild system. We can see how an ecosystem functions without man's influence. That is amazing, and we can't recreate that. And we, show, we were able just to show it. In, so, in, in order to meet, sorry to interrupt, in, in order to meet that criteria, however, do you have to supplement the visualization with hard data? Oh, absolutely. For that, it, we, we did have to do that. Um, and there were many facets that had to come together. And um, uh, scientists from the University of Costa Rica, um, there were you know, directors, there were people who had lived on the island. There have been many expeditions to the island. So we had to collate all of that information and, uh, and pull it together. And I, I think the, the really interesting part about Cocos Island is that it, it's 360 miles from 
continental Latin America, it takes 36 hours to get there. You cannot fly a plane to the island. You have to endure this this trip, which I think is fascinating. You see dolphin and whales, everything on the way. And um, that distance has kept this island pristine. But now it's that same distance that is separating um, the officials from uh, watching over what's going on. Um, poaching can happen out there without people seeing it. And furthermore, the the people in Costa Rica don't really get to experience this island. They don't. Uh, it's very expensive. It, it takes a long time to get there, and you can't stay on the island, which makes it pristine. So, in a country where people are looking for for fish, where the fisheries are are disappearing off the coast, um, why shouldn't they go and and be able to harvest the resource of the fish around around Cocos Island? Um, and if they can't see it, then they can't love it. They, they don't even understand why it's such a fabulous place. So what we're trying to do once again is use vivid imagery and create a, uh, an experience, a Cocos Island experience that will be housed in the Children's Museum in San Jose so the children can actually go and tour and feel the island, feel the wildness, learn about it, um, understand what the importance of apex predators, understand you know, a lot of, of, the, um, of the things that make this, their World Heritage Site, so very special and therefore be more prone to back um, government legislation that will protect the island. Now, when you go on these expeditions, you are obviously a group of professionals. Do you take with you children, students, do you immerse them in this process? We have done that in the past. Um, we've, we've led three um, um, expeditions that were uh, all high school students. Um, actually, one of our students uh, just entered uh, college at American University, and uh, she is double majoring in film and marine biology, as far as I understand. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we, we get... if, if if nothing more, I mean, our purpose isn't to um, isn't to uh, convince students that they should study film or, or even marine biology. It's to um, expose them to the ocean, the beauty of it, um, and by doing so, create new young ambassadors. And also, people find themselves when they find the ocean. It's a it's a beautiful place. It's a very soothing place, and um, you know, it's it's a it's a good place to go and uh, and meditate, if you will. So you have the expertise, the technology, the manpower to take these expeditions, to create these films, to produce this wonderful uh, photography. What are you doing to bring in? film professionals uh, and for example let's look at somebody like Jim Cameron who has uh, with uh, Vince Pace done so much uh, underwater work what are your your ambitions what are your objectives there to be able to bring in individuals of this caliber into this to help you oh we would love it um, I actually met um, James Cameron he actually inducted me into the Women Divers Hall of Fame and uh, he told me to call him. He thought this was a great foundation. And I've tried to call him many times, and I haven't heard from him. Okay. <laughs> so, Jim, if you're listening, call me. <laughs> um, of course, um, bringing in that hybrid vigor will only help our efforts. When we launched, um, basically, it was a decision to roll up our sleeves. We really didn't um, come from um, 
We didn't come from an environmental, an environment of nonprofit. We, we don't have that background. That's not where we came from. We had our equipment. We had our connections. We had our friends. And we just wanted to get together and start um, producing films, introducing kids to filmmaking, to um, being empowered, um, and, and all that good stuff. And uh, all of a sudden, th- this um, foundation took on a life of its own, and uh, we're now finding that we're going up against a wall because we cannot continue to grow unless we do seek traditional funding because we have to have that continuity. By um, working solely on the power of volunteers, there's just... Uh, we're missing that continuity that would really help all of our um, all of our directives come together. Are you looking at educational establishments as a way to become accredited on these programs, so that uh, that acts as a, uh, influences um, these kids to actually uh, spend their summers in between university courses with you on these projects, knowing that they can be accredited for this? Um. Yes and no. Um, I think I think accreditation is something that that's putting the cart before the horse at this point. I think we have three um, initiatives that are actually um, on the video that's uh, on our homepage, and we really want to we really want to focus on those and get them done. We've been working on them. We've had different volunteers, different teams, different people with expertise. We have a phenomenal advisory panel. And um, we want to finish those before we launch any new programs because we just don't have the infrastructure to um, continue to lead um, student expeditions and, and continue to do some of the other programs we've, we've done and we've enjoyed so much in the past. Um, and so we're, we're trying to narrow our scope a bit and finish uh, the, the programs that are on our, on our desk. And you talk to traditional support, you use this terminology, traditional support, are you talking about that in the form of equipment, manpower, technical expertise, uh, even some sort of uh, government uh, um, support with funding? Yes. We, we, we have, uh, we haven't um, really focused our efforts on going after NOAA grants and um, other traditional um, grants that are out there, and uh, I, I mean, we, we, we've actually we've tried a couple, and it's it's a it's a very very steep road, and we really need to have people on board that are focusing on on doing that and matching our programs with um, likely partners. Um, that's something that we're missing. We, we don't come from that um, from that strength point, but we so instead of uh, pursuing that, we've just sort of used our, um, you know, the equipment and the expertise we've had available to us and, um, and accomplished our, our goals. Um, but we would, we would very much like to um, find partners who were interested in what we're doing and help support us with general funding and, uh, and project-specific funding. I have to say that I've looked at the website and some of the streaming pieces that you produced and they are quite extraordinary. Can you give us a bit of detail about those, how they were created, who was creating them, what was the strength behind those? Well, thank you. Um, we, uh, I guess, 
I could take one in particular and just sort of look at the anatomy of that video uh, right now on our homepage, which is imagingfoundation.org. Um, we have a video that we created in a response to this um, Facebook Chase Challenge, and I think we learned that uh, I think we learned that we had to produce the video and a proposal, etc. I think it was the 22nd of December, and it was due um, two days after New Year's. Uh, so, you know, that was just basically an impossible task that was put on our desk. Uh, and uh, we called around and we, because we needed a narrator. Um, Kaylin stepped up to the plate. She's a six-time Emmy Award or yeah, Emmy Award nominee and phenomenal uh, spokesperson. Um, you know, we have our footage and um, material that we have collected over expeditions, but then, you know, how do we put that together? How do we edit it? And what is the caliber of the people who are going to come on board? Well, over the holidays, you know, it looked dismal. Everybody's going home. Everyone's gone. The phones, you know, weren't being answered. And uh, finally, we had just an amazing team, um, a group called Subtractive, um, pulled together and just walked up to the plate. I had never met them before. Um, we um, were introduced through a mutual friend, um, Stephanie Quayle, and uh, all of a sudden stuff started happening. They said, oh, come on over. We'll, we'll see what we, we can do, and I sort of imagined someone's garage. But basically, you know, they, they had their act together, and they were saying thank you to me. And um, I, it, 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 once again, it's... it's when all of this comes together and it's happening, it, it's, it's wonderful because people feel good about making a difference. People want to make a difference. They see that there are problems out there and they want to do something about it, but not everybody is necessarily in a position where they want to continue to um, you know, donate, etc. So when we can give people the opportunity to flex their skill set and put that on the table, they love it. And um, I don't know, it just, it ends up really working out for everyone involved. I think that profound um, statement from Robert Redford, I think the environment should be put in the category of our national security. Defense of our resources is just as important as defense abroad. Otherwise, what is there to defend? Th that is amazing to, uh, amazing statement that Robert makes there. Uh, are those the caliber of people that you would ha like to have involved in this foundation? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. That's exactly what we want to do, and to brainstorm and to pull organizations together and to use what we do best, which is, you know, the creation of media and, uh, and uh, public service announcements and to pull young people in and get them creating their um, creative muscles and, and getting messages out, and then to have that type of, uh, that type of advisors just makes it all wonderful and everything flows and it'll pull it all together. That's exactly the direction we hope to go in. Can we go back and just focus for a couple of minutes on the, the Chase Community Giving Program and the RAID project? I'd just like to get a bit more detail for our listeners on that, if I may. Absolutely. What, what is it exactly that they are achieving and what is the, 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 the reach of this? Oh, um, well, um, we, there was a, an effort launched by Facebook and uh, Chase Bank Community Giving, uh, 
and phase one was uh, was uh, I think five hundred thousand um, grassroots organizations were uh, involved, and we emerged in the final one hundred. Uh, and we are very excited about that, very proud. And now it's uh, really a, uh, going to be decided by popular vote if we can uh, go to the next to the next level. We the next level being a donation by uh, Chase of one million dollars, and there are five runners up. Each will receive a grant of one hundred thousand dollars. So. Uh, we're calling out to everyone and saying, please go on and vote. You must be a Facebook um, member. You must have a Facebook profile. And the uh, site, the voting site, uh, can be found at tinyurl.com backslash shark vote. So <laughs> I'm glad you got that in there. <laughs> we, we, uh, well, of course. We, uh, well, we, we, that's an easy peasy way to get people to the site, and there they can see the uh, recent video that we pulled together. And, uh, yeah, it was, it, it, please, if anyone has the opportunity, one vote equals a million dollars, and that's, that's a lot for us, a group of volunteers who have done so much without any funding at all. This would just make all three of our uh, major directives right now happen and happen very quickly. Well, I think our listeners have received that loud and clear and I hope that there's some activity. As far as that funding that that comes in, how is it allocated exactly? How, how much is allocated to the actual film uh, processing uh, part of this, the, the filmmaking part of this? And how much is allocated to the uh, um, scientific um, evidence collation that, that you have to, to complement the filmmaking? Um, well, it'll be divvied up into three different projects. Um, one is the virtual Cocos Island project that I described earlier. Another is the um, online um, go-live of a searchable database that has about 80,000 professional images and video clips that can be used by students, teachers, and scientists. And uh, the final one is uh, a, a PSA competition that we want to launch to get students and, and other filmmakers, anyone really, involved and excited about making, uh, making short films that have a message and a call to action. Um, all three of those projects are um, highly developed, but as I said, without uh, funding and without that continuity, uh, we, we really can't release them because you know, there has to be that fulfillment. So I, I think that it's, it, the $1 million would go so far with our organization because we have so much done and all we need are finishing funds. Um, how much would go towards scientific um, input? Um, not as much because we're partnering with scientific organizations and they receive the imagery that um, sort of... Um, works well into their presentations and substantiates what they're saying. Uh, and so we work in a partnership, and they bring in their information, and we bring in the imagery. And who, who, who are those organizations out of interest? It's everyone. Um, I mean, we work specifically with people um, as projects come, come up, but these images are available to everyone, um, from scripts to um, Woods Hole. Everyone will be able to access 
um, the images in the database, and they come from a uh, donation, 80,000 images to launch. Um, that's, that's a sizable database for people to have access to, to use in their PowerPoints, their scientific papers, their presentations, etc. In the latter half of the program, can we turn our focus now to the oceans themselves, uh, to talking about the state of the oceans, uh, the state of marine life, uh, the way that uh, marine life is being nurtured by the ocean itself, and what are the influences um, of our activities upon those, uh, uh, on those oceans uh, that possibly are, are damaging the marine life? What is the status at the moment in our world? Grim. Uh, right now, um, a Pew Foundation study came out saying that you know, eight, possibly more than 80% of um, the large megafauna of the ocean are gone. Within the last 20 years, they've disappeared. Um, many of those are the apex predators, and um, it's you know they're they're just disappearing. And we're dealing with some shifting baselines too because um, the younger fishermen and the younger people are coming in and not realizing what it was like 70 years ago, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, or even 20 years ago. So, you know, there's a bit of apathy there because the the difference isn't um, noticed across the board. Um, so so that, that's definitely a problem. We have these, you know, garbage patches. The, um, the North Pacific gyre is out of sight. But it's continuing to build every day. If we examine how much plastic we're using, each of us on a daily basis, and it's not just here; it's throughout, um, you know, it's throughout the world. Uh, everyone is turning more and more to disposable materials, and that's ending up somewhere. Even the so-called biodegradable materials end up as small pieces. I mean, it doesn't necessarily biodegrade to nothing. It, you know, breaks apart and ends up as, uh, you know, polymers floating in the ocean that really don't belong there, and there's a slurry out there in the middle of the Pacific that's being imbibed, in, ingested by uh, jellyfish and, and um, plankton, and, and you know, it's, just, it's also just sitting there. So uh, you, know, you have your coral bleaching. There's just so many insults that are impacting the ocean, and I think collectively it's a huge problem. How is this worsened by the greenhouse effect that we are hearing so much about, especially uh, in the pole regions? Well, I mean, the, the rising of the ocean, that's a problem. You're, you're getting the acidification, and uh, I mean, it, I think it's, it's all a huge problem. The coral reefs are being greatly impacted by um, the climate change, and they are one of, you know, they're very, very important in the warmer water ecosystems. They're the foundation. And um, you're, you're just seeing so much coral death. And with that, you're, you're seeing a greatly diminished number of, um, of coral fish. When you create this amazing photography, whether it's film or stills, are you doing this to elevate the beauty of the oceans, the, the beauty of the marine life, or are you attempting to show in many ways that destruction that we're experiencing? Um, we are definitely very focused on doing both. I think that, you know, there are so many beautiful pictures out there, and I jury so many uh, competitions uh, in still photography and video, 
and I've been on competitions where I've actually brought people out and showed them tips on underwater photography, etc. I've seen them go down and they're shooting a small blenny and there's a monofilament line wrapped around the coral head and they, they, they you know, gently reach around and, and move that out of their, their frame. And to me, that is the picture. That is what we should be documenting. And that's not what, what you know, most people are focusing on. Um, and I think that we need to shift that. So, it, of course, we want to show people, many people don't dive, many people haven't seen um, what the ocean looks like when it's in its full splendor, and we need to bring that across. But we also need to show how that image is juxtaposed with an image of the same coral head from 20 years ago. We need to show what's going on. You know, people say, oh, that's so ugly. Oh, I can't watch that. Uh, and I, I, That's tough for me to understand why people can't watch something, especially because we can change it. We can reverse that. We can we can change the tide. Um, and I, but if we don't see it, then we don't know that it needs to be um, it needs to be resolved. I was going to ask that. Is it all irreversible? The conditions that we see now. You know, um, I I'm not. I don't think anybody is in a position where they can they can guess that. Now, it certainly is at a tipping point. I think that we really need to pay attention to this, and we need to do it now. I think uh, you know our our needs are increasing, and um, the bounty is decreasing, and there. I mean, that's that's the bottom line right there. Um, we're trawling our our oceans. We're, we're the bycatch is just out of control. It's being tossed overboard and wasted, um, and we're ruining the habitats, which means that. Um, animal nurseries are going away, and we're, we're just kind of hitting it from every possible direction. And unless we take a step back and realize that we're going to have to make some sacrifices and we're going to need to rethink a few things, this is just going to continue. Are there any major areas in the world oceans that are more impacted up than others, like, for example, the major shipping lanes? Um, yeah, there are areas that are more impacted than others. I guess it depends on which, you know, which, uh, which problem we're focusing on. I think a huge problem is, um, you know, mangrove development. People go in and mangroves are swamps. Mangroves are just, you know, that, they're just that. And uh, people who find that, you know, this is a great fishing area. Let's fill in the mangroves so we can put some hotels here so we can you know, bring tourists in and they can go fishing. Finding out they build the hotels and then they bring the tourists in and, and then there aren't any fish. And that's because the mangrove was the nursery. And now that the nursery's gone, no more fish. Is that a, a problem that is arising because of the overfishing of the last 30 or 40 years? No, that's a problem in just people want to develop uh, on, you know, and they're, they're filling in the mangroves. This is something in addition to the overfishing that's gone on. Um, this is because people do enjoy um, oceanfront um, hotel rooms, and by uh, filling in the mangroves, um, because mangroves aren't considered, a, you know, a, a point of uh, ecotourism draw. They're, they're not primary there. So by filling them in, it's a perfect place to put... A, uh, a hotel. I mean, most mangroves are on the ocean edge, so you fill that in and you place a, a, a hotel on it, and that seems great. The truth is that mangroves, they grow, uh, it's a secession, 
and they, as as the succession continues, different species of mangrove um, fill in, and finally it becomes dry land. But the roots, which are able to live in salt water, provide a sanctuary for the fish fry and for for um, juvenile um, marine animals. And this is where they go and grow up. This is where the eggs are. This is where they. This is you know where they begin. Without that. Where, where do the, you know, they're, they're eaten directly. They don't have any pr- protection. And uh, so, you know, again, now we, now we don't have a place to raise uh, a new generation of fish because they've all been built on. So, you know, it's just there's so many different things happening, and we need to start talking to people about that so that they're, they consider uh, where things are built. And uh, because nobody wants to go to a beautiful hotel if they go there to fish and there aren't any fish. Are there any uh, particular areas in the world that you have taken these expeditions to, these these programs to, where the the crews that you've taken, the the kids that you've taken, have been so profoundly affected by the beauty of the area, the beauty of the ocean? Yes, of course, absolutely. Um, I think that you know places such as Indonesia and uh, uh, we're going actually back to Fiji next month and uh, Cocos Island. I mean, Cocos Island to me is uh, is the epicenter of underwater beauty. Uh, it's it's very high adrenaline, and it's where all the, the big guys come to to um, visit. You know, you'll have a wall of hammerheads, and you'll have. 100 white tips. It's not as if you're going to go and you're going to see a shark, maybe. You'll see 100 in a day of the, of the white tips, but, you know, there used to be a 1,000. There used to be other species there that are not found, but what you, what you do see is just amazing compared to what you'll see elsewhere in the world. Um, it's, you know, the toughest decision of the day is after you back roll into the water and you, you know, orient yourself and you open your eyes. Well, there's a dolphin to your left, and down below there are a couple of you know, large turtles, and there's a wall of hammerheads directly in front of you, and you have to decide which one you can want to go and inspect. It's a tough decision. What about your personal journey, Georgianne? What, what is that in your life with the work that you're undertaking? How is it affecting you uh, and your love of the ocean, love of life? Um, where is it taking you? Well, it's, it's passion-driven. Um, I think that... I think we're very lucky people if we wake up in the morning and we have something that we can't wait to get to, to get going, to, to you know, to move forward. To you know, and I, I personally, my biggest love is to be on expedition. If I you know wasn't trying to get support for the contest and and <laughs> I would be very very happy if I could be on expedition constantly. I love being on a boat. I love diving and I love being in the water and, and seeing these amazing animals and the, the the occasions when they choose to come up to you and they approach you and they they check you out and and you sort of have a a moment if you will. That's just phenomenal. There's just nothing like it. Um I I thrive with those experiences, and then to bring that back and put it together in a creative, uh, in a creative way, and then and then show that to other people and, and get them involved and get them excited. That's 
I mean, I, I just think I'm a very lucky person to have a life where I'm able to feel that type of passion and excitement every day. I guess it would be a an objective, a, a dream come true, I suppose, if you could involve somebody like <clears throat> Vince Pace, uh, the the man behind Avatar with all the 3D technology, given that he is uh, so uh, enthralled, so interested in, in the ocean, to become involved with this, to be able to uh, bring in uh, the, that technology, uh, that 3D technology, and be, become involved in, in your projects? Oh, yes. So, I mean, any... Uh I mean, he's obviously a genius, and I find that uh, when we when we pool creativity and we have team players, we can do anything we set our mind to. What is the future, Georgian, for the foundation? What are the what are the plans that you have over the next five or ten years? It really now is depending on funding, um, and I've tried to avoid that at all costs, and. Um, <laughs> But, you know, it's, it's a reality of life. I'm reluctant to um, make any promises or produce any forecasts without knowing that because uh, bottom line is uh, if we want these programs that we've developed to go forward, we definitely need, need some funding now. So I, I feel that, okay, we've done a lot. We brought it all to the plate. It's all been done. Here we go. We're ready to launch and, and now, uh, and now we do need to seek traditional funding. There, there just isn't any way to, to get around it any longer. You are clearly very passionate about this whole subject. This is clearly your life. What would you say in the final three or four minutes to our listeners about the world's oceans, about the marine life that is contained within them? How would you incentivize all of us to become much more involved in this incredible asset that we have in this world? Wow. That's, what I would encourage people to do is to reflect on the fact that the, while the oceans are beautiful and everyone loves to sit and watch the waves roll in and there's nothing like watching the sunset over the ocean, that so much more lies below the ocean and to be aware that all is not well and that anything people can do, don't throw rubbish uh, in the gutter where it will eventually end up in the ocean. If you can get involved with a beach cleanup, please do so. Um, know that the majority of our planet is ocean and that uh, we need to have a healthy planet if, uh, if our children are going to survive. And just consider what will it be like if your grandchildren don't ever get to see a dolphin, if, if dolphins don't live during their years. I think that, that's, that's a very strong possibility, and uh, I think people really need to think about that and, uh, and take action in whatever way they can. The oceans themselves uh, that you've witnessed during your lifetime, you must have seen some extraordinary beauty uh, in, in this work, Georgianne, what, what do you, in the, final, in the final minute of the program, what do you take away for your own life in the work that you have been so immersed in? I, I take away that I have been blessed. Jo I have been truly blessed. The, just, 
just being given the opportunity to scuba dive, to enter a world that's not hospitable to humans, but being able to spend as much time as I've spent underwater and interacting and befriending animals um, under there and, and seeing this world where you can fly. In the water, when you're scuba diving, you can fly. You have this third dimension that we don't experience when we're on land. And you can go up and down just as a fish does. And you can go forward and backward. And, and you can see this whole fantasy land, but only it's real. And to, to watch that, it's, 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 it's a dream. Georgie and Bradley, it has been a great pleasure to share this time with you today. In uh, concluding the program, would you like to just let our listeners know uh, your website information and how they can help? Absolutely. Please go to imagingfoundation.org, and if you go there um, through next Friday, um, which is the 22nd of January, um, you can have the opportunity to, to vote in this Facebook contest. And if not, just please enjoy the work that we have on the site, and uh, we have listed a variety of ways that people can become involved and, uh, and become part of what we're doing. Georgian, it's been a great pleasure. I wish you so much luck in the future with the Foundation. Oh, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed talking with you. And to our listeners, uh, I hope that you have enjoyed this program as much as I have. You can uh, get information on this, of course, at our official website, davidgibbons.org. There is a fully functional blog. If you would like to pose any questions to Georgian, I'm sure that she will be happy to respond to anything uh, that you have to say or any questions that you have on the subject. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america business channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voiceamericabusiness.com the voice america talk radio network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio visit voiceamerica.com the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the voice america talk radio network its staff and management